Jonathan. My name's Jonathan Frakes. How are you? The only reason I'm doing this is because Will Wheaton said you guys were cool. He said, I've known him from the beginning. You should do this. show and so when we got back uh we you had to be able to reconcile the fact that you may have just wasted four months of your life doing something that nobody was going to see because if top gun was what people's vision uh in the in the late to mid 80s of a war movie was ours ours wasn't that right and then when they found out oliver was going to release it at christmas (laughs) great Feel good movie of the year. (laughs) Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. You can also find us anywhere the internet allows you to download or stream podcasts. And we're here right now in your ears, so you obviously found us. How's it going, Jamie? Uh, (laughs) It's going really well. And I would just like to say thank you to everybody who did manage to find us this week. Um, and yes. we hope that you keep coming back. So welcome back. Welcome, welcome. Now, I, I've <laughs> talked about this in the past, and yeah. I'm going to talk about it again. Okay. And a lot, of, a lot of people don't know this. Well, some people do if they listen. But Jamie comes up with our questions for our interviews. And we have heard a lot, and you don't – it usually gets edited out because it's kind of like we're – we don't want to be like, oh, oh, toot, toot, we're, you know, when, when they say things about us. But – um, a we're, lot of the times we're allowed to toot our own horn. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But <laughs> sometimes it, it just doesn't fit, so I cut it out. But a lot of times people are at the end, they're like, you know what? That was, wow, really great questions. Like, really fantastic questions. And after this interview to, uh, that you did this time, I remember you messaged me and you showed me a tweet that our guest tweeted. And with no exception, I think he was a fan. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think you had a good time. I mean, I, I I wasn't planning to say anything here at the top of the episode because it was a little awkward. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, he yeah. I mean, after every interview, I you know I I, I thank the guests for taking time, and often that's just right. on Twitter because I might not have an email address or something for them. Plus, I think the public acknowledgement, like the public thank you, is also just a nice yes. thing to do. Um, and so I got off the phone. Well, I don't know why we're being all secretive about it. So it's John C. McGinley is who we talked to. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I, I got off the phone with him or I got off the Skype with him and uh, I did my usual, you know, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. That was a great talk. Um, yeah. And many people, you know, they'll write back and be like, yeah, the, the, thank you. That was great. Or they'll just like the tweet or, you know, um, right. I think hands down he probably had the nicest response I've ever gotten from uh, from a guest. So it was it was much appreciated and it made it was I, I'm not gonna lie it was a it was a bad week. Um, just a lot of stuff mm-hmm. going on. Um, it was a really rough week that week that I spoke to him and so that like sort of turned it around. It just it made it made my day a thousand percent better. So it was it was much appreciated and. Uh, and uh, it was it was very very nice of him to say. 
Awesome. So we are talking to John McGinley today. Why don't you tell us about the interview? So John C. McGinley is um, one of those faces that you have probably seen in a ton of movies. He's probably in one of your favorite movies or shows. Um, he's he's just been all over the place. So he actually um, started his career um, with Platoon and Wall Street. So just a few little films you might have heard of. Uh, so we, we talk about that. You know, what, what was it like to, you know, begin his career with such huge films, uh, huge Oliver Stone films? Um, but he, he is, uh, close with Oliver Stone. So he's been in a number of his films. Uh, he's been in, he was a prominent role in Office Space. So a lot of people who love Office Space know him as one of the Bobs. Um, he was Dr. Cox on Scrubs for nine years, uh, and he was far and away the best part of that show. The first few seasons, I, I will admit, I don't think that I watched all nine seasons, um, but I probably watched, watched at least the first five or six all the way through. And um, in its prime, that show was the funniest show on television. Um, and it, it was just reliably hilarious. And he, it, that was in most part due to him. I mean, his, his performance and his role as Dr. Cox on that show just stole every scene he was in. Uh, and now he is on Stand Against Evil. Uh, he is, uh, the lead, uh, main title character. He is Stan, not Evil. Um, but, uh, we talked about Stand Against Evil a little bit before when we had Janet Varney on the show and she is also um, on that show with him. So uh, we talk a lot. We talk a lot about his career, where he came from. Um, the, we, we talked a bit about Platoon. I had some Platoon specific questions for him. Um, we talk about he does a lot of work um charity work around down syndrome so he works with the global down syndrome foundation he also works with the special olympics so we talked a bit about that toward the end um and i just really wish we had more time with him because we just had a really really good conversation we do we, we do say it almost every week but it's usually true this week it is the best conversation we've had. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna go play this week's best conversation we've ever had for you right now i hope you enjoy <laughs> John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's a just a thrill to have you here. So thank you for uh, for joining us. Thank you. Um, is Stand Against Evil your first real foray into? I mean, I don't know what we would call it the the, the sci fi fantasy genre, like you know, what we call genre television now. Well, I did two miniseries for Fox uh, that were Dean Koontz miniseries. Uh, one was Intensity, and I forgot the other one. Um, but they were both super scary yeah. and intensity is one of the best things I've ever done. Um, I can't remember what the other one was. Yeah, uh, but I mean, is it, is it fair to say though, that this is really your introduction to quote unquote comic con culture? Yes. <laughs> I mean, John, Johnny Cusack and I did identity together with, uh, with Jim Mangold. That would have worked. I think it was just pre, uh, that would have been just pre comic con. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we went down to San Diego uh, last year and then this year, and we went to New York last year and this year. And then while we were shooting, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm gonna have the actors do this again this year, when we were in Atlanta, um, the guys up in the Silicon Valley, uh, who are all Comic-Con fanatics, they started their own Comic-Con. Right. And 
so we flew the actors there when they wrapped on Friday morning at like 4 a.m. They got an eight o'clock flight. They went to San Jose. They they did the whole routine and then they flew back on Sunday. And I don't I don't think we'll do that again next year. It's too, I, I think for the the profoundly condensed period of time that Stand Against Evil is, which is four weeks and four days. It's not even five weeks. Because we start the day after Memorial Day. So we shoot eight episodes in four weeks and four days. And all I want the actors doing, and next year, uh, I, 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 I don't think it's valuable for them to show up for a five o'clock call on Monday morning, having gone to San Jose and back on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. But in other words, I, I think these Comic Cons are great, but I think in season for that that tiny little period of time we're shooting, I, I think the actors should have like blinders on, like a like a thoroughbred, and just be doing stand. Yeah. You don't need. They, we don't need them to fly to San Jose. That <laughs> they're fine. They're fine if they go and do San Diego and New York, and now I'm coming back to New York on um, on Wednesday. On the 26th, we're going to do the New York Television Festival, and that stuff's all fine because it 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 it, it comes right up to November 1st, and so the timing of that is great. Yeah. But I don't I don't know if we'll go to San Jose again next year. Yeah, um, how I mean, you're a producer on the show, so I mean, how does how does working on Stan, where where you're the producer, how does that compare to other projects where you don't have as much creative freedom? Like, how, what does that afford you that you can't do on other projects? When Dana Gould came out here to bring me Stand Against Evil two years ago, I was obsessed with Stan's loss and his injuries and how damaged a guy this protagonist could be. And I wanted to explore that with Dana. And I don't know if he was ready for that or not, but he's nimble. He's cerebrally nimble enough that he just banged right into it. And so protecting that tone as a producer is, is what was important to me and protecting Deborah Baker Jr.'s ability to improvise because she's like Neil Flynn on Scrubs. She's really good at it. Yeah. And bringing in guest stars, even though we couldn't afford it, you know, bringing in, bringing in the David Koechner's, bringing in the Stephen Oggs, the Jeffrey Combs, those are the people I, Atlanta's got a, a decent pool of actors, but it ain't New York and Los no place, no place is New York and Los Angeles. Right. And to get those actors to come down, you got to fly them, you got to house them, uh, you got to pay them. And I don't know how we did it this year, but we did. And it was a sea change for the show. Yeah. And so as a producer, that's the stuff that I can, that's what I can offer you. And plus I had a post-production company in the Brill building for about, 15 years. So you, you want me in post, I'm going to make your life easier in post because I'm really good at it because I was doing it for 15 years, uh, in the Brill building. And I had, uh, we had a company and that's what we did. And so, uh, and during that time I produced five movies. So none of this is unfamiliar to me and I'm just going to make your, your life and protecting your vision easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, that's why when when we went into the show, one of the one of the deal breakers was I I had to be a producer of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have um, in terms of acting, you've got a 
a deep background in theater. You've obviously been around. You've done a lot of film. You've done a lot of TV. You've done voiceover for animation. And, I mean, there are times I'm sure when you're doing more than one medium at the same time. I mean, is that difficult to switch between them because they're very different skill sets? It it largely depends on what's on the page. Yeah. Like I'm the voice of Carhartt, and I have been for the last five years or so. And uh, my friend just sent me the new copy for the Carhartt spots that we're going to do tomorrow. And they're great. All you got to just call action and start saying the copy that, that Brian wrote. And so, no, it's, to me, I, I like to serve the writer, uh, not always the director. Sometimes, sometimes directors have no idea what they're doing. So the common denominator has to be the words on the page. Mm-hmm. If, if he or she has no idea what they're doing, um, but we're sharing this text, which we all, this story, which we all came to tell, then, then that has to be the connective tissue. So I like to serve the words. Yeah. Whether it's doing David Mamet on Broadway, whether it's doing Glenn Gary, or whether it's doing Platoon with Oliver or Office Space with Mike, I like to serve the words. Yeah. And that's that's has served me well. Do you then prefer to work on projects where the writer and the director are the same person? No. Really? Why not? Because unless that person's exceptional, they're not good at both. Hmm. Or unless they've had a lot of experience, they're not good at both. Something, sometimes, like one of the first films I produced, Watch It. Um, I put in Peter Gallagher and I put Lily Taylor in it and I put uh, Peter and Tommy Sizemore and Susie Amos and uh, John Tenney, all these great actors. And the writer-director we hired, uh, Tom Flynn, who was a lovely guy, he really wanted to protect his words. And as a result, the, the frame became very stagnant. And after two days of dailies, we had a meeting with him and we said, Tom, you gotta put some energy in the frame. We gotta, we need some walk and talks. We need to, we, we need to, this can't just be yeah. uh, people protecting your words. And so a, a lot of the times uh, you're, you're not, there's, unless that person is extraordinary, uh, like an, a great example is, is Catherine Bigelow on, on Point Break. Mm-hmm. Catherine's vision and her doing an exploration of, of testosterone and adrenaline uh, from a female perspective uh, was fascinating. Yeah. Twice as interesting if a man had done it. Yeah. Catherine's vision on Point Break and how lovely she made Patrick. Uh, distinguishes the film whether you like the film or not doesn't matter but it's really interesting Catherine's perspective on an exploration of testosterone and adrenaline yeah yeah absolutely Um, I wanted to ask you two of your very first roles were you mentioned one of them was Platoon and Wall Street Um, what was it like to be in such huge movies so early in your career did it it set you up with unrealistic expectations for what was going to come next no Here's why. Platoon was a low-budget independent film. Um, it was a $6 million film that was delayed two years before we actually got to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we got to the Philippines, it it was really hard and it was really dangerous. And uh, then when we got back from the Philippines, Top Gun was the Reagan-era war movie. And it was about hardware. And it was just about um, jocks and 
and and and the morality of it was really pretty questionable. And that's not what we shot in the Philippines. And so when we got back, uh, we you had to be able to reconcile the fact that you may have just wasted four months of your life doing something that nobody was going to see. Because if Top Gun was what people's vision uh, in the in the late to mid '80s of a war movie was, ours ours wasn't that. Right. And then when they found out Oliver was going to release it at Christmas, we're like, great. Uh, <laughs> Feel good movie of the year. <laughs> and, and, and then it, it worked out. But uh, no. Uh, look, the, the greatest thing about Platoon in retrospect was that you got to be involved in something that was great. And a lot of actors will never be involved in something that's great. The Vegas odds are you're not going to be. Yeah. Uh, if great is a, a best pick for this for this conversation, we'll say, will you, how many best pictures will you get to be in? If the presumption is that a best picture is great, and I know they're not always, but yeah. for, for 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 this for this conversation, you got to be in a great film, and you should be able to draw from that as as one moves forward. And, and be able to juxtapose mediocrity with that something in you were in that was great, and and how you can balance those two should be a tool that you should be able to use, yeah. because you got to be in something great. You got to be a part of something that was great. That's fantastic. But but Wall Street, I was doing talk radio at the public, um, and it was a hit for a year and a half before. Uh, before Wall Street came along, and I only shot Wall Street for three weeks, and I was doing it um, while I was doing talk radio, and so I'd be down at the Woolworth building shooting Wall Street during the day, it was a New York actor's dream, and then at night, I was supposed to be up uh, at the public, you know, for half hour at 7.30 and go on at eight, and that was as as good as it gets. Yeah. It's, you said something interesting there, though, is that you know you when you take a risk when you work on a movie like that, that you come home and you think, oh my gosh, did I just waste four months of my life making this film if nobody's going to see it? But then you also, in the very next breath, you say, but it was great. So I mean, if if some if nobody sees it or if you don't reach the audience that's as big as you really want it to be or as you think that the film deserves, does that matter? I mean, to you as an artist, as an actor, I mean, if you see it as great and if history will say that was a great film, but nobody saw it, does that does that make yeah, a difference? A here's a good example. When I went to the cast and crew screening of uh, Office Space, yeah, I thought it was hilarious and I thought it was going to be a massive hit. And it was out of theaters in 10 days. It tanked. Yeah. And I was very disappointed because I thought it was I thought it was hilarious. And for whatever reasons, nobody went to see it. And then because of, you know, uh, computers and phones and, and, and VCRs and people on DVDs, people watched it. But I, yeah, I thought it was very disappointing that that film absolutely did nothing. Mm-hmm. And then to everyone's surprise, anybody tells you they knew it was going to be a, a, I hate the term, but a cult movie um, is full of shit. The, yeah. I thought the film was funny as hell. And yes, it was disappointing that no one went to see it. Yeah. Um, moving back to Platoon for just a second. I mean, I was fascinated to learn that um, Oliver Stone filmed that film 
chronologically. So and, and so as characters were killed off in the story, they would go home, and there were fewer and fewer of you left on the set, um, which I think adds a, a, a level of realism to your performance that you couldn't have gotten otherwise. I mean, George Lucas did the same thing with American Graffiti, so he filmed it chronologically. Um, and, you know, that's me looking at it from the outside, though. I mean, did, did that really have an effect on your performance and on the film as a whole? A hundred percent. Yeah. Because if, if a, I think a platoon is three guys, three groups of eight with a sergeant. So uh, it's 27 guys. And so as you died, you left. And as, as the film stretched on for those three and a half months or so with two weeks of boot camp up front, um, so it was about four months in the Philippines, the Philippines increasingly became more and more dangerous mm-hmm. uh, because the political landscape was so fraught with coups. And there was a, the president was named Cory Aquino, and there was this guy, uh, Ramos, who was the general in the army. There was a threat of a coup every other day. And who better to, and this is post uh, what happened with the hostages in, in, in Iran. And you're thinking like, wow, we're, we're pretty good targets. Uh, <laughs> better, what better targets? And so you'd go home every night to the Manila Gardens Hotel and, and 14-year-olds would be walking around the street with AK-47s. And I am not exaggerating. And it was a really dangerous place. It was this close to being anarchy. And Oliver loves anarchy, and so he's just shooting away. And as you died, you left, which was kind of a gift, but some of us didn't die. And there's about five or six of us left at the end, and what we were left with was this gaping hole of people who had just been here and you, you had invested in, and, and, and they were gone, and now the city's just unbelievably dangerous, and Reagan's talking about getting rid of Subic Bay and the, the Navy base and Andrews uh, or Clark and Andrews Air Force Base. So the Filipinos hate Americans. And you're like, and my mother has brain cancer. She's up at Pittsburgh Presbyterian having a brain surgery. And you're like, what the fuck am I doing here on this low budget piece of shit? And Oliver's calling action and screaming yeah. at you. And the camera's just gobbling this up because there's no action. People are fucking scared and that's that's what oliver got have you ever had other experiences like that where you know the quote-unquote the acting you're acting but it kind of plays second fiddle to just being there and in the moment and reacting to what's literally happening in in real life i would say that when johnny when johnny and i went down to do fat man and little boy with with newman and um a twice nominated uh, Roland Jaffe from the Killing Fields and the Mission. When when we got down to Durango, Mexico, and there was this set, uh, Durango's at around 8,000 feet in the Sierra Madres, and they built Los Alamos, Paramount built Los Alamos at about 10,000 feet, and it was this scaled version of Los Alamos. Uh, that you didn't have to act much. It yeah. was, the film's not good, but <laughs> that's for another reason. Um, but the acting in Fat man and little boy uh, felt like uh, reacting. Yeah. Um, I guess you know because of you know situation. That was disappointing. That was what. That was disappointing. Yeah. I, I thought that had a chance to be really special. Yeah. Um, a lot of actors will say that there is um, 
a little bit of themselves in all the characters that they play. That's just natural. That happens. Um, what interests me, though, is kind of the reverse of that. Like, the characters that become part of you and, and, and you, you come out the other end of that project as a different person. Have you noticed... I mean, is there... Dr. Cox in you? Is Stan in you now? You know, I mean, have you noticed any of that where you're just absorbing these characters and changing who you are personally? I got to meet um, Johnny Cusack, who lives about right over there, um, <laughs> who is kind of the fourth McGinley brother. Um, he, I got to meet and become friends with John Malkovich when John was shooting with him. And we, we got to talking. And what John was said, which was really interesting because Robert De Niro was kind of trading at his all-time highs back then. And what John Malkovich told me was that he always perceived there were two schools of American acting. One was um, De Niro submersing himself in the role and the character, and Malkovich, who invited the characters to become him. Hmm. And I, 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 it's not semantics. It's, those are two different approaches when you, when you get a script and you start doing your homework, are you going to go seek out some doctor at UCLA or are you going to go, go to a trauma ward if you're, you know, whatever the character is, or are you going to start digging into letting that character become you? And Malkovich is like, he told me there's nobody he knows better. There's no college of eccentricities that he could employ more, more readily than, and it, there's nobody who has more spine and it takes spine to let the characters become you because you're kind of, you're opening up quite a bit. Yeah. And I'm, to your question, I always invite them to become me. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't say it as eloquently as John did, but I'm from that school. I let them become me. Yeah. So by letting the characters become you and, and you know, having that two-way road where you influence each other, but yet, like you said before, you know, you're, the script is paramount. You know, it's got to be the words on the page that tell the story. Do you appreciate the ability to ad lib when you have a role? You know, something that I think that you did on Scrubs and also with Office Space, because that lets you play with the character's words, you know, become that character and have the character become you a little bit more. I only really ad lib with the buttons on the scene, with the with the outros. Uh -huh. I, I like to serve the writers. And, and if there's a if there's a a fun button that maybe the writer didn't think of that rhythmically might serve Dr. Cox or rhythmically might serve one of the Bobs um, or rhythmically might serve Stan, then I'll, I'll go to Mike Judge. I'll, I'll go to Dana Gould. I'll go to Billy Lawrence. And I'll go, I got, I got a, pretty, a pretty funny button that uh, after I say it your way, do you think I could maybe sprinkle it in? And they're, everybody's up, always up for it. Yeah. If they're not, they're ass faces and I don't want to work with them. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, it, it served me well, trust me. <laughs> I do it. I used to. I don't do it anymore because I don't audition. But I used to do it in auditions because if you're going to go to Buenos Aires for five months and and shoot a film, and you get trapped down there with some very pragmatic, um, we're gonna we're gonna do it my way or hit the highway. I don't want to go. Yeah. yeah. I want to collaborate. Even Oliver is good for collaborating. He loves it. You do it his way first, <laughs> then yeah. you can bring your favor, which I respect. Sure, sure. Um, I wanted to shift gears just for a few so minutes. Many people are so scared of their own shadow, they're like, "No, we gotta no, no, no," and I'm like, "Stop with the no." What do you mean, no? <laughs> 
Um, let's shift gears for a few minutes. I, I Talk to me about uh, your roles with the Global Down Syndrome Foundation and the Special Olympics. So Global uh, is run by a woman named Michelle C. Witten, S-I-E. And Michelle, um, who's this brilliant, amazing woman, went to Harvard Business. About 12 years ago, she had a daughter named Sophie. And just like all of us, uh, she went to the hospital expecting a Norman Rockwell delivery. And her daughter was born with Down syndrome. And so she carved off a piece of her father who uh, started the STARS Network and has been massively successful, John C. And she carved off some of some of his foundation and they built a hospital at Denver Children's, uh, the Linda Cernick Institute. And all the Linda Cernick Institute does is serve people with Down syndrome. And instead of passing out pamphlets and singing Kumbaya, they're a science-driven group. Mm-hmm. And I had been with the leaflet uh, Kumbaya, we're all gonna go through this together groups, for, and they're fine, but I wanted to be with the science-driven people, the people who in a very aggressively competitive um, charitable contribution landscape where AIDS will eat your lunch, where breast cancer will devour, they'll just, they'll shove you out of the way where cancer will just your disregard you, those, those charity driving arms of those organizations are, they're machines. And I wanted to be with a group who stopped apologizing for their children, like yeah. a lot of Down syndrome groups do. Because the dirty little secret with Down syndrome is you should have had the amnio, you should have the abortion, why are you making your problem our problem? And it's like, fuck you, the kid's here, he needs help, yeah. stop with your bullshit. And so I got with uh, Michelle with down in Santa Monica, and the first thing she told me at lunch was that they hire five lobbyists in Washington. And I'm like, there we go. Now we're playing big boy poker. Yeah. And you know, uh, the cancer and cancers and and breast cancer and AIDS have a thousand lobbyists. Well, we don't, but at least we have five. And the Global Down Syndrome Foundation is a science-based organization, and trying to integrate science into improving the lives of people uh, whose 21st chromosome tripled. And so I've served on the board now for five years, and they've been amazing. And uh, right, right about the same time I got with Global, five or six years ago, um, Tim Schreiber called me and said, do you want to come up to the uh, World Winter Games in Boise, Idaho? And I was like, you know what? Sure. Sure, I'll, I'll come up and see what you guys are doing. I don't know what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. And I went up there and I saw the World Winter Games and a component of every World Games is a youth leadership conference. And a youth leadership conference is about 180 of the athletes who are also self-advocates. I didn't even know what self-advocates were. And they go into an auditorium and they table issues that are, that are germane to their struggle right now kids from South Africa, kids from Austria, from Australia, from all over the fucking globe are in this and they're self-advocates and they're talking about stuff that, that they're struggling with. And at this particular youth leadership conference, which is an, a component of the World Winter Games, everyone was talking about the R word, about retard and retarded. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And so Tim and some of the other folks there and myself started to move the group towards uh, coming up with a campaign. And the campaign would 
come to be called spread the word to end the word. Mm-hmm. And at first it was a viral campaign. Now it's, it's something that I teach down at USC and UCLA and at Pepperdine and at the boys and girls club. And, uh, it just, what it, what it wants people to do is sprinkle a little compassion in their language and understand that, that when, that when you, whether you know it or not, when you use that language, you're, you're perpetuating a negative stigma about a population that never did anything. They're genetically, it's genetically impossible for our population to do anything to hurt you. We can't, we're trying to get through the day. And so when you start putting down our group, that's a, if you didn't know it, then now we're, we're sharing this with you. But B, if you do know it and you continue to do it, that means you're a spineless coward. And I want there to be um, a consequence for that. There's not, but I, I, I wish there were. And so I want to, what I've come, what I've, what I've evolved into by being exposed to the Tim Shrivers and the Michelle C. Wittens of the world is I've become an advocate for people who can't advocate for themselves. Yeah. And that's a clear path for me and something I'm comfortable doing. And I was just doing a speaking engagement in uh, Milwaukee, which was off the chart uh, two Mondays ago. And that, that's who I want to be between films. I want to, I want to advocate for people who can't advocate for themselves. It's amazing. Um, is it frustrating though that in 2017 we still have to tell people that we should be respecting one another? Like that's something that still needs to be said. When you put it in the in the time frame of African Americans who 150 years ago were slaves and people in Charlestown are still using the N word and talking about blood and soil, yeah. then oh, our path has just begun. Yeah. We just started spread the word N word six years ago. And if the African-American struggle is still what it is in fucking Charlottesville, then no, our path are, we're just getting underway. Yeah. One last question, then I'll let you go. Cause I know you have to be I'm sorry for the bad language. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, Edit it out because when you read it, uh, it sounds crass. So I, I, I prefer if there was no bad language. That's okay. Um, there are parents out there somewhere right now who just learned that their children have special needs of some variety. If you could give advice to them based on your own experiences and the advocacy that you've been doing, um, what would you say? I can really speak specifically to uh, children whose 21st chromosome is tripled. Mm-hmm. Uh, get on the Global Down Syndrome uh, website and somehow um, beat a retreat to uh, Denver Children's Hospital, get to the Linda, Linda Cernick Institute and, and be, be armed with the information. And we're sharing all these doctors and all these research people from around the planet to provide you with information that you're not gonna get unless you come to us. And so I would, I would beg them to get on the Global uh, Down Syndrome uh, Foundation website and, and find your way to Denver. It's especially, there, there are things, look, it's not something that can be cured per mm-hmm. se, but there are massive things happening, uh, interventions, especially between uh, when you're one and five years old, when, when, you're, have, when you have, you're having con- congenitive uh, neurological problems, when you're, when you're having sleep apnea, when you're having infantile spasms, when you're, when you're having uh, digestive problems, when you're having cardiac, cardiac problems. These are things you're not equipped to deal with. 
we are right at global and and we can't cure it all for you but we can point you in the right direction and when that cat that cosmic hammer has come over and smashed you in the skull and all of a sudden you have a child born with down syndrome and it's not clear that that child's a gift yet because you don't even know what just happened get to global yeah fantastic um john thank you so much for your time it's just been an absolute pleasure so something I've I thought about when you were talking earlier about all of the different projects he's worked on and big movies, you know, being an actor ha- or, you know, a film producer, whatever, have to be a really neat job because of the variety of, I know there's probably a lot of uncertainty, don't get me wrong, but the variety of projects you get to work on through a career, that, that must be exciting to some degree. You gotta, you gotta believe would- it is. <laughs> I would think so. I mean, for an actor, because you're right, we talk to a lot of actors. I mean, unless you're on, you know, like when he was on Scrubs for nine years, like that was probably most of what he was doing. Um, But, uh, you know, the variety of of actors who can jump between television or films and to to the stage, you know, to do theater, um, that is fulfilling, you know. I mean, we we did talk about that a little bit because there was a time in his career when he was doing, um, um, he he was working on a set during the day, and then he had a, a, a theater at night. So he was tra- he was pulling down both, and he was like, for an actor, that's the dream. And and um, most people don't don't get the opportunity to do that just because timing and schedules don't work out. But yeah, I would agree with you. I think that. Um, the variety is probably what keeps most actors ticking because they like to to keep it new and fresh. Right. And that's a variety you don't get in a lot of career paths. So it's pretty it's pretty neat to see. And yeah. that's why we talk to people. Absolutely. We live through them. We pretend that we were actors. And I don't know we what do. you do. That's what I do. I'm, we, I'm like, we yeah, live, I was yeah, so- on that show. That's what we should have called this show. Instead of the great, big, beautiful podcast, which is just a mouthful, we could have called it something like Living Vicariously, because that's all we're doing is living vicariously through other people's creativity. <laughs> we're sitting here. Yeah, we got these these people's phone numbers because we called them with <laughs> their Skype handles. We're, we're best friends with the stars, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're like, you know, like this. Yeah. (laughs) all right guys thank you so much for coming back every single week if you don't come back every single week i say this all the time but what is seriously wrong with you (laughs) so if you should uh go and make sure you subscribe so you can come back and listen i am justin at 140 justin c i am jamie at the Roarbots, and we are the great big beautiful podcast at the gbb podcast on facebook and twitter we will see you next time take care This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.